Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions, an accidental company. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This is for Friday, March 23rd. 2018. Yes, this would be season two, episode number 14. You can call this the Dave Keon edition of the Bobcast. Now, I should probably come up with maybe a more recent star player who's so closely identified with number 14 than Davey Keon, who, by the way, along with Tim Horton, those were my two favorite NHL players when I was a kid growing up in Toronto in the 1960s. Now, I suppose I could have modernized it a little bit and gone with Brendan Shanahan or Dave Andrichuk. They, of course, were famous number 14s, and both of them have been inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. But I was thinking about this a little bit. Number 14 is not as iconic as some of the traditional hockey numbers. It doesn't have the same iconic feeling as number 4 for Bobby Orr or Jean Beliveau. Uh, not like number 9 with Gordie Howe and Bobby Hull, amongst others. And... Uh, Number 19, which there's been so many great number 19s and Iserman and, uh, and so many more. But, um, and, and really, if you look at even this season, there's some really good players in the NHL who wear 14, but I don't know that they're necessarily identified by that number. Jamie Benn of the Dallas Stars will be one, Sean Couturier in Philadelphia, Matthias Ekholm in Nashville. Those guys are great players, but when you think of them, you don't think, oh, yes, old number 14. Um, well, in any case, enough... Enough numerology to start off the Bobcast. This is also the Mail It In March Part 2 edition of the Bobcast. Since I spoke to you last on the podcast, I've had my five-day mini vacation in Turks and Caicos. Oh, it was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. And if you follow my Instagram or Twitter, you know that. I was posting like an idiot from down there. Um, And that was followed up by uh, a, a brief run of work at the TSN studios before... My some work, some play sojourn to Boca Raton, Florida, for the GM meetings, which I just got back from. So I've now gotten my uh, fair share of vitamin D. Uh, the battery's fully recharged for the end of mail it in March. And uh, what's coming up, and that is obviously the excitement of the playoff run that will start in April. Before we get into any of the usual fun and frivolity on the podcast or any of the hardcore hockey talk, and there's lots of that to come, uh, I do want to open on a very sad note and offer my deepest condolences to Ottawa Senator Defenseman Eric Carlson and his wife Melinda on the loss of their son, Axel Michael Carlson. Um, the Carlsons revealed this week that their son was stillborn on March 19th. And as any parent will tell you, um, the, the grief they're experiencing now must be just unimaginable. Um, no parent should have to go through that, and yet... It happens and happens too often. Um, I don't know if you saw it or not, but on Eric Carlson's Instagram account, he posted a photograph of uh, Axel's footprints, and along with Axel's full name and the date of his birth, which, I mean, it, it, it's as heartbreaking as it gets. I mean, th- th- there are no words. And um, sadly, uh, Eric Carlson is the second NHL player to experiencing experience this recently. Uh, Carolina Hurricane Jordan Stahl and his wife Heather at the end of February 
dealt with the tragic loss of their baby girl, Hannah, who was also stillborn. Now, um, I've gotten to know Jordan's parents, Henry and Linda Stahl, a little bit over the years. Uh, my son, Mike, and their son, Jared, played together uh, with the Florida Everblades in the East Coast League and a little bit with Charlotte in the American Hockey League. And uh, you, you couldn't meet a, a better family than the Stalls. And um, I guess at difficult times like that, like this, uh, having a, a close-knit family like the Stalls is one of the things that helps you um, get through that. So, as I said, uh, no words can possibly bring any comfort to anyone in this situation because, as I said, there's, there's simply nothing worse for a parent than to, to lose a child. And um, you'd like to say that no mother or father should ever have to deal with this unimaginable grief, but sadly, they do. And all the rest of us can do is to take a brief moment now to keep them and others in our thoughts and, and hope for the best for everyone. Okay, as uh, my late mum would say, onward and upward. Now, as I mentioned, um, just got back from Boca Raton in the GM's meetings. And there obviously is news to talk about there, so we should talk a little bit about the goaltender interference discussion that occurred and the fact that we are now going to have a little bit of a change in terms of how coaches challenge for goalie interference is administered, as you probably have heard by now. Uh, now approved by the National Hockey League Players Association, uh, and obviously something the GMs wanted, is they want the final authority for these decisions to be with the Hockey Operations Department in Toronto as opposed to the referees on the ice. And the rationale is is understandable. Simply, the, the GMs believe, and I think the league concurs, that um, if you get the same four or five people in the Situation Room in Toronto making every goaltender interference call, which is, as we know, is very subjective. But if you get the same four or five guys making these decisions on a game-by-game, night-by-night basis, you're likely to have a lot more consistency than if you deal with the 20 or 30 or 40 referees that are out there that might individually see things different from game to game and night to night. So we'll see how that goes. And quite frankly, the fact that this is happening at this time of the year I don't want to say it minimizes it because I I think once you get to the playoffs, you start to get more consistency in video review rulings anyways, because you've got eight playoff series going on. There's a series supervisor uh, who's part of that series. Those series supervisors, six of those eight guys that are series supervisors, by the way, are former NHL referees. Um, they get more involved in the process. They get in, involved in the dialogue that goes on between the Situation Room in Toronto and the referee on the ice. So there tends to be more support for the referee to make that final decision. But now that we're going to the, the Situation Room in Toronto, the ultimate authority goes to that group. Now, it should be pointed out that there is going to be an officiating presence that wasn't in the Situation Room before. One of those uh, officiating supervisors or ex-NHL referees will be in the Situation Room as part of the dialogue that goes on. And, and that was really something the NHL didn't absolutely have to do, but wanted to do to make sure that the referees had a f- pretty good feeling about giving up final say on those controversial or close calls where they might have their call reversed by somebody who works above them in the situation room. So we'll see how it all plays out. Um, hopefully we'll have a better understanding of what is or isn't goalie interference uh, as we go through the playoffs. But just remember this, 
Uh, there's still going to be controversy, as we've said time and time again. This is a judgment call. And as much improvement and consistency as you might get, there's still going to be controversy. There's still the potential of really long video reviews. There's still the potential of being into double overtime of Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final and having a goal called off or called a goal with a, a lengthy review following while we all stand around and decide, does the team get to celebrate the Cup win or not? It, if it brings back memories of Brett Hall and the Dallas Stars and the Buffalo Sabres, so be it. But that scenario can still very much exist. like to think that it doesn't happen, but it absolutely could. One of the other things that happened, or should I say didn't happen at the meetings in Boca, uh, and I thought it would, to be honest with you, is I thought the general managers would push hard and support a motion to redefine the wording on what's offside and what's not offside. Specifically, does that trail leg have to be touching the ice or not? So is this, you know, you know the deal. You've seen the reviews this year. Hardest part of, of those offside challenges on video review is, is the guy's skate blade touching the ice or is it not touching the ice? I mean, it's hard to tell a lot of times whether the, the, the player preceded the puck into the zone or not and the old breaking of the plane um, and, and crossing the blue line. But I think the more difficult thing to do on video is to try and determine whether a skate blade is on the ice or off the ice. That seems to be much more multidimensional and much more confusing. And a number of GMs I talked to before the meeting said that they wanted to redefine this. Take out that criteria and say, it's okay if your skate blade's in the air. Um, that's onside. Don't worry about it. But only 10 of 31 GMs decided to go down that road. And they, fa- in fact, needed to have 20-plus in order to, to change that rule, they would have had to have a two-thirds majority of the 31 general managers, and they obviously didn't come close. Now, there, there were a number of GMs who, like Commissioner Gary Bettman, were concerned about the safety aspect of it, that if you allow players to lift their skate to be a, a legal entry as part of offside, that maybe now we're going to be dealing with skate blades flashing up around players' legs or arms or, heaven forbid, up around their neck or their face. I think it's a little overblown, but I guess nobody really wants to find that out. In any case, it it did not fly. And I think one of the reasons it didn't fly is because the the GMs don't perceive the offside challenge to be as nearly as big a problem this year as it was last year. And and that's the truth, because the the number of offside challenges is down by almost 50%. And the reason for that is quite obvious. It's because they... They took it. They they took out the uh, using your time out to uh, on an unsuccessful offside challenge as the penalty to be paid, and they made it an actual penalty. They said if you miss if you miscalculate and call for an offside challenge and you're wrong, you now get a minor penalty assessed against you, and that has drastically cut down what we would I guess call the frivolous offside challenges that happened in the past. And a lot of these took so long to try and figure out and that skate in the air, skate on the ice, it drove everybody crazy. So by greatly reducing the number of offside challenges, I guess the GMs felt like they didn't need to go the next step because they could have reduced the number further by about 40% because 40% of the challenges this year were skate on the ice, skate off the ice issues. So... um Interesting numbers and an interesting approach there. I still think they're going to regret it at some point, but uh, hopefully we won't find out 
in the playoffs. This also brings up another interesting thing, and I think we should have a frank discussion about this. Um, Gary Bettman and Bill Daly and, and all the guys at the National Hockey League Hockey Ops, they talked about the possibility maybe as early as next season that they would do the same thing with goaltender interference coaches challenge as they did with offside. That is, forget about using your timeout to get a challenge. Use, uh, risk running uh, a minor penalty uh, for an unsuccessful goalie interference challenge. And, and obviously the same principles at work here. Um, the NHL wants to reduce the number of coaches challenge. And I think there's a reason why they want to reduce the number of coaches challenge on goalie interference. And the answer is real simple, because they never should have done this in the first place. Now, huge mea culpa on my part. I was right at the forefront of the very large group of media, fans, uh, general managers, and league people who, when they introduced the coaches' challenge, thought it was a hell of an idea. Hey, yeah, let's use video. Let's get it right. Yeah, we got to get it right. Everybody wants to get it right. And on the offside, we said, what could possibly go wrong with this? It's a black and white thing. Either you're offside or you're not. How difficult could that be to figure out? Well, we already know the answer to that one. It can be damn difficult, and it, it can really disrupt the flow of the game. And while goaltender interference is much more subjective, and there'll be many fans and media and even some GMs who don't want to apply the minor penalty criteria for a failed goalie interference challenge because it is so subjective, but I think it's coming, and as I said, it's coming because the league knows this whole coach's challenge thing. They can't just get rid of it because, it, you know, I mean, once you decide to use video and you go down that road, it's hard to uh, put the tooth, uh, toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak. Um, you can't be seen as, as, let's get it wrong. Let's go back to the system we had where there was no way to check if we were right or wrong. You, you, as a league, you can't do that. But you know what? I bet the league would like to. And you know what? I would like them to, too. Because what's happened is we've changed the very fabric of the game. A goal is a goal, but it's not a goal anymore. As soon as a goal is scored, the first thing you wonder, is it offside? Is it goalie interference? Are we going to have a long review? Should we celebrate? Should we not celebrate? How you watch the game, how you enjoy the game, for me, is significantly diminished now that we have the coach's challenge. So, yeah, you know what? Getting it right, I guess that's good. But I kind of long for the days where we might have got it wrong, but we just played hockey and everybody kind of moved on and that was that. So it'll be interesting to see if next season they bring in the minor penalty for a failed goalie interference challenge because uh, I think they want to greatly reduce the number of these challenges and that's one way to do it. All right, then. We've got a couple of emails here in the listener feedback department. Um, and the first one comes from Brian Baxter and. Brian gets this one for being a bit of a visionary because it's on the very subject we were just talking about. Hi, Bob. Here is another consideration for coaches' challenge. Coaches should not be allowed to challenge offside at all. The reason is simple. In order to have open and transparent fairness, if coaches can challenge offside on a goal, they should be allowed to challenge offside on a scoring opportunity that was taken away by blowing offside when, in fact, there was no offside. Many potential scoring chances have been thwarted by calling an offside that was actually onside. Since you obviously cannot recreate the opportunity, there should be no challenges to any offside. 
The officials do an absolutely remarkable job of calling the rules of the game, allow them to do their jobs. If athletes make a mistake, there is no do-over. We accept it and move on. The same should apply to all official calls made on the ice. I'm not so in favor of technology creeping into the game unless it is going to be fully technological with no on-ice officials at all. So obviously, Brian Baxter, something of a visionary, recognized way ahead of the curve that this coach's challenge was a can of worms that maybe wasn't going to make things that much better. Uh, Brian does finish up here, though. Uh, He's a little unhappy about something. Speaking of on-ice officials, the thing most perturbing to me is that the number of times officials are involved in the play. They disrupt both puck and player movement far more often than they blow a call. I believe they should go back to one referee with the linesman inside a box at the blue line to call offside and icing with the ability to come onto the ice if warranted to break up an altercation. That way the play can flow with minimal disruptions from the referees. My two cents worth, signed Brian Baxter, a lifelong hockey fan. Well, Brian, I don't think you're going to get the... uh, uh, the two-referee system abolished anytime soon, but you were right on the coach's challenge, so who knows, maybe you're right on that too. Uh, next listener feedback comes from Sean in Ottawa. Uh, this is kind of a, a personal letter to me, but I'm going to read it for you nonetheless. Hi, Bob. I just wanted to send you a quick note of thanks. You may or may not remember me, but I coached a peewee team in Ottawa back in 2010, the Ottawa Sting, and I had them down to St. Lawrence University for a team visit. I know Kyle Flanagan, who played for the Saints at the time, and he was our host. Anyway, I emailed you and asked you if you were going to be there for the game and if you would mind talking to my team. To my surprise and delight, you emailed me back and told me that you would be more than happy to do it. We ran a practice, and I remember you and your son, Mike, were on the bench side when you called me over to introduce yourself. Such a cool moment to meet you and something I'll always remember. You took almost an hour to chat with my team and parents, signed some copies of your book, and really made the day a special one. As I remember it, you were leaving the next day, a Sunday, to go to the Olympics in Vancouver. I just wanted to thank you once again. That was more than seven years ago, and it's still something I fondly remember. Thanks again, Sean in Ottawa. And to Sean in Ottawa, no, thank you. It's always a pleasure to uh, have an opportunity to interact with minor hockey teams and minor hockey coaches and uh, those were great days back in uh, St. Lawrence uh, to go down and see my son play and uh, for the, the kids that got the chance to come down from Ottawa and see the Saints play and to skate at Appleton Arena. It uh, had to be a great thrill. So um, thanks very much for that opportunity, Sean. Okay, then, let's get to the questions, and there are many good ones this week on the Bobcast. Um, this one comes from Brandon Whittington, who opens up with, Hello, wonderful people of the Bobcast. My question is, what is your take on the Carolina Hurricanes GM search and the rumors surrounding it? Hmm. That's a very good question, Brandon. Um, And I'm not sure where to start. So when I always ask that question of myself, hmm, where do I start? Uh, Usually at the beginning. So I guess we should start talking about the fact that Tom Dundon came in as the owner, Um, took over from Peter Carmanos this, this season. And, um, you know, he's a rich guy from Houston, not a hockey guy, and, and I think somewhat proud of that. Uh, unconventional is, uh, is a word that's been used to uh, describe him, and I think he takes that as a compliment, that he's, he's uh, been very successful in life and business by taking path less traveled and, uh, um, you know, can, is pals with Mark Cuban. Uh, that he's in a, I, I get the sense, without, I've never actually talked to Tom, but, um, you know, he's an action guy, he's an energy guy, unconventional. 
um, wants to do things differently, and um, which is which is fine, no problem. So that's the the one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is the fact that um, uh, next to the owner being the owner of the Carolina Hurricanes, the next most position, next most important position in the organization, and the dominant individual in the Carolina Hurricanes hurricane organization for quite quite some time now has been general manager ronnie francis and um ronnie i've known ronnie a long time in fact um when ronnie played hockey for the sioux legion midgets in sioux st marie ontario i was in cornwall ontario covering him when he went to the air canada cup uh national midget championships um and when ronnie was a 16 year old rookie um, 17-year-old rookie with the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. Um, I was working for the Sioux Star and, and covering uh, him then and used to see a very conscientious Ronnie Francis on the long bus rides home doing his homework diligently while many of the other Greyhounds were not doing their homework diligently. So that in a nutshell kind of uh, tells you a lot about what Ron Francis has always been about. Now he's a Hall of Fame player. And as a player, he was always a huge victory of substance over style. Not to say that he didn't have style, um, but a very cerebral hockey player. Very, very, very smart. Um, could anticipate things well ahead of them happening. Uh, not the fastest skater in the world. By no means the flashiest player. But uh, gets the job done. Win face-offs, kill penalties. Uh, play a solid 200-foot game, as good without the puck as he was with it, and he was absolutely fantastic with it, a fantastic elite-level NHL playmaker who made everybody on the ice that much better around him. So there was a... I I would never say there was a a plotting element to his game, but there certainly was a patient, thoughtful element to his game. And as an executive in the National Hockey League, Ron Francis was all of that and, and more. Uh, smart, patient, methodical, process-driven, disciplined, do things the right way, do things a step at a time. Again, victory of substance over style. And also a guy who does not seek the spotlight, is not perceived as an action or energy guy, uh, and doesn't want to be heard or seen. Got a plan, you stick to it, and you don't share that plan with an awful lot of people. So when you... Take the personality profile and the styles of Tom Dundon going in as the new owner and Ron Francis and the way that he carried himself after succeeding Jim Rutherford as general manager of the Carolina Hurricanes. And from the moment that this, uh, this new marriage took place, I had my doubts whether it was going to work or not because I just think it was more than anything else a clash of styles. Now, it was suggested after... Ron Francis ceased to become the general manager uh, when Tom Dundon reassigned him, if you want to call it that, um, that that Dundon was looking for a critical thinker and Ron Francis wasn't a critical thinker. Uh, I don't buy that one for a moment. Um, Ron Francis uh, can be a thinker of any kind that you want, critical or otherwise. He's a very, very, very bright guy. But there is no question that the, the style that Ron Francis chose to carry himself with as the general manager of the hockey team, did not at all mesh with Tom Dundon's vision of how he would like things and the synergy that he expected as an owner with his general manager. And Ron Francis, I'm sure, was adamant about not altering that 
perspective in any way, shape, or form, and could be pretty stubborn in that regard, I would imagine. That's my guess from the outside looking in. And I could see where Tom Dundon would be um, not pleased to have a general manager that worked in this fashion and that Dundon maybe wanted to have a bigger role or a bigger say or a bigger input on a regular basis than he was going to get from Ron Francis. So um, no, fa- you know, no fault of anybody on that one. Just for me, clash of styles. Now, what I will fault Tom Dundon on is timing. Um, I don't think he picked a great time to make the decision. I think he should have let Ron Francis finish out the season and commenced his search for a general manager once the season was over. Um, because to do it in, in the midst of, at that time, that, that Francis was reassigned, and they gave him a new title, but let's not kid anybody, he was effectively, if you want to call it fired, but it's not fired because he's obviously still getting paid. And from what I understand, Tom Dun- one of Tom Dundon's guiding philosophies is that you don't pay somebody not to work for you, so he still expects Ron Francis to do something or to be part of the organization in some way, but Ron would know better than anybody that he's no longer calling the shots or having uh, a front and center voice in hockey decision-making. And uh, so reassigned, we'll call it whatever you want, but um, Ron Francis got parked, if you will. Um, so then what became a very public search where Mike Fuda, assistant general manager of the Los Angeles Kings, Paul Fenton, assistant general manager of the Nashville Predators, uh, Tom Fitzgerald, assistant GM, the New Jersey Devils, uh, Steve Greeley, assistant general manager of the Buffalo Sabres, and Lawrence Gilman, a uh, very bright guy who uh, was an assistant general manager of the Vancouver Canucks when Mike Gillis was GM in Vancouver and uh, has, hasn't been uh, employed by a club since losing his job in Vancouver and prior to Vancouver was an assistant general manager with the Phoenix Coyotes. Those were the five names that surfaced for this general manager search with Dundon. And it was complicated a little bit because Dundon was away with his family in Mexico on uh, on March break at a time that a lot of this was going down. Maybe another reason why it maybe would have been better in the perfect world to let Ron Francis finish up the regular season before making the move. But um, as I said, Dunnan's an action guy. He's an energy guy. He's an unconventional guy. And he decided this was how he wanted to go about it. As everybody knows by now, uh, Mike Feudal publicly withdrew his name um, from the running. Then Paul Fenton did the same thing. And then Tom Fitzgerald did the same thing. And at that point, um, it appeared that the Carolina Hurricanes kind of pulled their horns back in and said, listen, we're going to revisit this when the season is over. I believe Don Waddell, um, team president and front office executive, who used to be general manager of the Atlanta Thrashers, is technically perceived as the interim GM for the Hurricanes. But it's not an ideal situation as we wrap up the regular season to not have a general manager in place. Now, you might ask the question, why did... Fenton, why did Feuda, why did Fitzgerald all withdraw their names from consideration for that job? I think there's a number of reasons. The timing was maybe part of it. Um, I think in the, certainly in the case of Feuda and maybe Fenton as well, there was maybe a little bit of discomfort of trying to go through this process that was going to likely take a week or two or three or maybe more um, at a time when their own teams, in the case of the LA Kings, are trying to get into the playoffs. And in the case of the Nashville Predators, um, they're trying to win a Stanley Cup, and, and right now we're probably the odds-on favorite um, going into the, the playoffs to do that. Um, so that was one of the issues. 
The other issue is because Ronnie Francis is still under contract and being paid by the Carolina Hurricanes, both the term and the dollars available to the general manager may not be optimal for somebody to leave a really good job as assistant general manager. Um, there's talk that maybe this this job was only going to be offered, the Carolina Hurricanes GM job was only going to be offered as, as a short-term one-year um, potential deal with the window uh, of possibility of, of longer term, but maybe only a year. And there was all sorts of talk in the numbers that got thrown around $200,000, $300,000, $400,000, but something in that less than half a million dollar a year range might have been the salary that goes with it. Well, some of these assistant general managers are already making that much or more. So there, there may have been a scenario, and, and again, we don't want to pigeonhole. We weren't part of the negotiations. Maybe Tom Dundon, for the right guy, was going to cough up more years and more dollars than were being reported at the time. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that. But at the end of the day, not the right fit at the right time or the right place for a lot of the guys that would be most interested in that job. And they may also ask how much autonomy would they have if Tom Dundon was going to be directly involved as an action, energy, and unconventional hockey owner who was going to be a big part of the, the decision-making process that went on with the Carolina Hurricanes. So anyways, that's the long and the short of it. I don't think this thing has been put on the back burner as much as people think. I think it's still percolating behind the scenes. Well, there is reason to believe that Lawrence Gilman did go to Carolina for an interview with Tom Dundon and that that interview may have been for a position with the organization that may not even be general manager. Um, so I think that Dundon's looking at a lot of possibilities and will continue to do so. Uh, and uh, as the season expires and more and more people become available for interviews, um, then I'm sure Dundon will uh, do as he sees fit and uh, follow that path less traveled. Next question comes from Jessica Meyer, subject Dallas Stars. Uh, Bob, with the injury to Ben Bishop, Kari Lettinen being rusty and underperforming, and currently the Stars currently being just out of a wild card spot, how are things looking overall for the Stars? Not to mention the countless other injuries to Mark Mathot, Martin Hansel's surgery, etc. That from Jessica Meyer. Well, Jessica, um, I think you pretty much answered the question in your question. Um, ben Bishop is injured. Um, Kari Lettinen uh, is, is getting the lion's share of the games now, but uh, that's not been a, uh, an overly successful venture for the Dallas Stars, both either long-term or short-term. And you're right, they are out of the wild-card spot, and they're, they're no longer in control of their destiny. Uh, so what it really boils down to, and they've lost back-to-back games, um, they need, they've got to climb over the St. Louis Blues for starters, uh, and they need help. They they need the L.A. Kings or the Colorado Avalanche um, to to lose some hockey games, and the the the, the Stars um, don't have games in hand on anybody. And because they are currently out of the spot, as I said, they need help. And uh, Mark Mathot's poor hand. I mean, uh, he had that. He almost lost his finger last year on the Sidney Crosby slash, and then he blocked the shot this year and. Uh, his his hands like hamburger, and losing Martin Hansel for the the season to back surgery, uh, and Bishop being out of the lineup, you know that first line it might be as good a first line as there is in the National Hockey League with Radulov and Ben and Sagan, but uh, there isn't enough secondary scoring to back them up, 
injuries are a problem. And I know Ken Hitchcock said, hey, we got to suck it up and, and make this happen. And there's still a chance, and there is still a chance, but the odds are certainly stacked against the Dallas Stars simply because they are out of a playoff spot and they're going to need help. And I don't know if they're going to get that help. And even if they do get the help, because of the injuries, because of the goaltending issues, because of the lack of secondary scoring, even if they get the help, they still, still may not be able to take advantage of an opportunity if it presents itself. Here's a good question for Toronto Maple Leaf fans, one that's been asked but not necessarily answered over the course of this season. I'm not sure we're going to be any more successful right now than we were earlier. Uh, this from Trevor Lorber. Uh, Dear Mr. McKenzie, who is Lou Lamarillo's most likely replacement? When do you think he will be replaced? Thank you for all your great work. Trevor in Montreal. So I'm assuming a Toronto Maple Leaf fan in Montreal or maybe... Uh, a guy, Trevor, in Montreal who's looking for Lou Lamarillo's job. You never know. Uh, in any case, uh, Lou Lamarillo is believed to be in the final year of his contract as general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, Brendan Shanahan, as recently as the last week or two, has simply said that uh, he hasn't made any decisions or talked to anybody within the Leaf organization about the plans beyond this season for general manager. Now, the options are fairly obvious, and we've talked about this in the past, and we'll talk about it now. Lou Lamarello is currently the general manager. Um, could he come back as the GM next year? Yes, that is a possibility that Brendan Shanahan could certainly uh, employ. Um, but assistant general manager Kyle Dubas is also a consideration. Now, Kyle Dubas, um, in the last year or two, um, Colorado Avalanche came calling and wanted to hire Kyle Dubas, and the Leafs uh, were not prepared to allow that to happen, ostensibly, we believe, because we think that Brendan Shanahan has very high hopes for Kyle Dubas as a future GM in the National Hockey League, and he wants to be in Toronto, uh, not somewhere else. So is it possible that Kyle Dubas, who's basically in charge of the Toronto Marlies, but also holds the title of assistant GM of the Leafs, um, could it be possible that next year will be his year as general manager and Lou would be done as GM of the Leafs? And we have to say, yes, that's a possibility. There's a third possibility here, and that is, of course, Mark Hunter. Now, Mark Hunter was an enormously successful hockey executive in junior hockey and owner and general manager with the London Knights and has done a fantastic job uh, with the Leafs as basically being the top dog as far as amateur scouting and a player personnel role for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And uh, there are a lot of people who believe that Mark Hunter has outstanding credentials to be a general manager in the National Hockey League. And could it be with the Toronto Maple Leafs? And the answer is yes, it could be with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, things are about as clear as mud, in other words. There are three guys for the job. And Brendan Shanahan's got to make a decision. Now, maybe in his own mind he's made that decision, but I do believe him when he says that he hasn't spoken to anybody uh, in the organization, including Lou, Kyle, or Mark Hunter, in terms of the direction he wants to go. So I think if you were to handicap things, um, and this is just opinion, not based on any inside information, I think it's possible that Lou Lamarillo could be kept on for one more year as general manager with maybe the promise to Kyle Dubas that he would be the GM in waiting. Uh, so don't go anywhere, Kyle. We're going to get right back to you. Um, that's a possibility. Uh, but the possibility also is that uh, Lou could be moved into a, a consultant's role, 
and either Kyle or Mark Hunter could be made the general manager. If you're asking me which of those two, my opinion that I think Brendan Shanahan will choose to do, um, if it was a choice between those two, I think it's more likely Dubas would be the general manager than Mark Hunter, but I don't have anything to base that on other than I believe Brendan Shanahan, um, as I said, when he... Uh, when he and the Toronto Maple Leafs didn't allow Kyle Dubas to leave Toronto for Colorado, it was because that they do believe he is going to be uh, perhaps the next GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs whenever that is. And if Kyle Dubas does become the next general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, whether that's next season or a year down the road after, after Lou finishes up, whenever that may be, What does that mean for Mark Hunter, who probably wants very much to be a GM in the National Hockey League? Is he going to be content uh, to to work for Kyle Dubas if that were the case? So these are all the unanswered questions that we've been all speculating on for some time. And as I said, I I don't have an answer for you as kind of laid out the the possibilities as I see them. And uh, it'll be a fascinating thing when the Maple Leaf season ends, however deep they may go into the playoffs, how Brendan Shanahan chooses to navigate those tricky waters involving the GM and the personalities involving Lou, Kyle, and Mark. Next question comes from Griffin Reed in Toronto. Hi, Bob. Do you think your media brethren could survive a Nashville-Las Vegas playoff series? Which notable cast members are most likely to suffer from severe liver damage? Laugh out loud. That from Griffin in Toronto. And, And Griffin does have a point there. I mean... If you uh, go back to last year's Bobcast during the Stanley Cup final, um, we had a lot of fun in Nashville. I don't know if it's possible to have more fun at a Stanley Cup final in Nashville than just about anywhere else in the National Hockey League. And Nashville is, right now, I guess, believed to be the favorite in the eyes of many. Uh, They've emerged as the best team in the Western Conference and maybe the best team overall. Um, so if we were to go back to the, the, the cup final in Nashville, that'd be a lot of fun. But in order for Nashville to get to the cup final, there is a scenario that Griffin's outlined quite correctly here, where it could very well involve a conference final involving the Nashville Predators and the, and the Vegas Golden Knights. Now, we've never, we, we can only imagine what a Stanley Cup final in Vegas would be like. Um, we could actually imagine what a conference final between Nashville and Vegas might be like. Now, we don't, here at TSN, certainly for the panel, for James Duffy, myself, uh, Puffy, um, O-Dog, Jeff O'Neill. By the way, the answer to the, which notable cast members are most likely to suffer from severe liver damage? I don't know why O-Dog popped into my mind there for a moment, but um, O-Dog's not a big fan of flying, but uh, for the right uh, uh, incentives, uh, he'll get on a plane and go. Um, so, yeah, we don't normally cover a conference final with the full panel, but uh, to Griffin's point, if it is Nashville, Nashville, Vegas in the Western Conference final, we may well uh, request that the panel gets to cover that one. That would be a lot of fun uh, for all of those in the media because those would be two fun cities. And that and I, I know fans in Winnipeg are going to get upset because it, it could be Winnipeg-Vegas. That could be fun too. Winnipeg's fun. Um, probably more fun in May or June than in February, but uh, I shouldn't make weather jokes for my good friends in Winnipeg because, well, because you shouldn't do that to the the good folks of Winnipeg. Okay, this next series of questions is kind of an interesting, I'll call it a phenomena, 
Um, and I'll tell you why here. So let's see here. Let's go back. Okay. So on November 21st, 2017, I get an email from Ben in Ottawa. And he says, hi, Bob. I recently read an article concerning Shea Weber. And if he ever retires before the end of his contract, Nashville would be on the hook as opposed to Montreal. Was part of the was that part of the trade or is it because his contract is pre salary cap era? OK, so note the date on that. November 21st, 2017. Ben from Ottawa with that question. Then on uh, January 31st, 2018, I got a question from Taha, and Taha says, Hey, Bob, my question is a bit off topic. It relates to the cap recapture penalty and how it could affect the landscape of the NHL and some teams in the upcoming seasons. Players like Shea Weber and Roberto Luongo and teams like Vancouver and Nashville could be affected by it. So that from Taha on January 31st, 2018. And then most recently, on Tuesday, March 20th, 2018, Roger Soucy sent me an email and said, As I understand it, Nashville is on the hook for Shea Weber's cap recapture to the tune of about $24 million to be spread out over the number of years that he doesn't play. If I understand it correctly, if he were to retire rather than play his last three years of $1 million per, which is likely... Nashville would be hit with a cap hit of $8 million three years in a row at that point. This isn't tradable like a bad contract. So when does Nashville have to start factoring in this heavy hit or penalty in their future plans? Thanks from Roger Soucy. So it's interesting that uh, different people at different times of the year have a great deal of concern for the Nashville Predators, the Vancouver Canucks, as it relates to cap recapture penalties for players like Shea Weber, uh, amongst others. So let's try and do this methodically. And because this is fun with numbers, I'll do this real slow and and try to keep it simple. I'll use the KISS system because when I say keep it simple, stupid, I'm most certainly talking to myself. So let's see here. Let's go first off. um, Okay, let's go to... Uh, Ben from Ottawa, um, talking about Shea Weber and if he ever retires before the end of his contract, Nashville being on the hook. And he asked the question, was that part of the trade or is it because his contract is pre-salary cap era? It's not so much pre-salary cap era. There was a salary cap when the contract was signed. What it is is pre-2013 CBA. And what happened is uh, a lot of teams thought they were uh, finding a loophole in the CBA of 2004 vis-a-vis using those back-diving contracts where they would structure the contract in such a way to have multiple years at the end of the contract for very little money, for years that they suspect that player might retire. And what it did was it drove down the average annual value or the cap hit to the team and uh, put a lot of money in the player's pocket up front so that if they did retire with a few years left, uh, the player wouldn't be losing hardly any money at all. The team would be benefiting by having a low cap hit, and the player would be benefiting by getting all the money up front. Boom, brilliant idea, and it actually was, until the National Hockey League came along during that CBA from 2004 to 2013 and basically said, listen, Uh, Yes, technically this is legally allowed, but we advise you uh, teams not to do this 
because we might come back retroactively and punish teams for doing this. So there was some semblance of ominous warning from Gary Bettman and Bill Daly that they might find a way to, to penalize teams for doing these backdiving deals. But the teams went ahead and did it anyways um, because it's the National Hockey League and you look for every advantage you can at the time you need it and you worry about problems down the road, down the road. Well, after 2013, in fact, the NHL did penalize teams for these backdiving contracts. And, and here's basically the premise. So Shea Weber has, um, where is it here? Okay. Shea Weber signed a contract that was 14 years in length. And um, it was worth a total of $110 million. And the average annual value or the cap hit for Shea Weber's deal was $7.857 million. So pretty good. Shea Weber is getting paid like you wouldn't believe. And the Nashville Predators, or now the Montreal Canadiens, have the advantage of getting a player who's got a cap hit of less than $8 million. Elite defenseman for less than $8 million. Not a bad deal. But what the NHL did coming out of the, the 2013 lockout in the most recent CBA was they basically calculated a formula that says um, if there's a difference between the dollars the player has actually collected by the time he retires and the cap hit, there's a formula that we can apply very easily here. So let's do it with Shea Weber. So everybody assumes that um, Shea Weber will want to retire after 10 years of his 14-year contract. And the reason they assume he would want to retire after that is because he will have earned 104 of the $110 million total that he was contracted to get. And so he's only leaving $6 million on the table. Um, And uh, that would probably be a good time for him to retire. But this cap recapture penalty that the league imposed basically says, okay, 10 years, $104 million is what he received, but 10 years at a cap hit of 7.857 is, well, $78.6 million. So what's the difference between the $104 million that Shea Weber got in that first 10 years of his contract and what the cap hits that the teams that he played on enjoyed the benefit of? Well, there's a $25.4 million difference. Uh, so if he were to retire with four years left on his deal, that $25.4 million difference um, is the penalty. And four years divided into the $25.4 million means that the Nashville Predators would get a cap recapture penalty of $6.35 million per year. That's a stiff, stiff penalty. Now, it's not the Montreal Canadiens that get it. It's the team that signed him to that contract originally. So that's the way it would work for Shea Weber. And um, now, if he were to retire um, after 11 years, uh, the the penalty would be even greater because he would have earned 106 of the, uh, sorry, 107 of the $110 million. And there'd be $20 million difference between what he received and what the cap hits were for his 11 years in the National Hockey League. And there would actually be a $6.86 million cap hit or cap recapture penalty for the Nashville Predators. Now, a lot of people are saying yes, but guess what? The Chicago Blackhawks never had to pay the Marion Hosa cap recapture penalty, and that's true. 
Marion Hosa had a 12-year deal worth $63.3 million with a cap hit of $5.275 million. As we know, he was, quote-unquote, forced to retire this past season uh, after eight years. Now, uh, eight years, he got $59.3 million of the 63.3 that he was owed. So all but $4 million of the remain of his contract um, was, was accrued to him. So he was only leaving uh, $4 million on the table. And if you do the calculations again, eight years times $5.275 million is cap hit. And that gives you $42.2 million and subtract it from the 63.6, sorry, $63.3 million that he was contracted to earn. There's a $17.1 million difference with four years remaining divided by four. The Blackhawks should have been hit with a cap recapture penalty of $4.275 million per year, but they weren't because he's on LTIR. He hasn't retired. His contract is still technically in effect, even though he's physically not able. And a lot of people raised an eyebrow at that and said that they, the Blackhawks were just looking for a way to get out of it. But the National Hockey League has investigated uh, Hosa's uh, skin condition and his inability to play and said this is legitimate long-term injury relief. And as such, they don't get hit with the cap recapture penalty. It's not lost on anybody that Shea Weber uh, has missed most of this season and, and recently underwent surgery that will keep him out for six months from that surgery in mid-March uh, into the fall. And this was a very serious surgery for tendon damage um, for a foot problem that was really chronic this year um, that was, I think, originally an, uh, uh, a fractured foot that they didn't realize was fractured at the time and gave Shea Weber all sorts of problems. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Shea Weber wants to retire from hockey or would be forced to retire from hockey. Quite the opposite. I'm sure Shea Weber wants nothing more than to get back and to continue to play. But there's also the realistic possibility somewhere down the line, because of the complications from this foot condition, that Shea Weber could also find himself in that same sort of situation as Marion Hossa. So... um yeah, that uh, I understand it's complicated. I hope I explained it well enough for people. And I mean, to give it one further layer, Roberto Luongo has been one of the great, great stories of the National Hockey League this season. Uh, he's found the fountain of youth in Florida, strangely enough, because that's where I think Ponce de Leon originally was, was looking for it. And uh, he's had a magnificent year, and whether he... Um, he helps carry the, uh, when healthy, helps carry the Florida Panthers into the playoffs or not remains to be seen. But um, in any case, he's also in that same, and he and the Vancouver Canucks are in that same situation. He had a 12-year deal, $64 million, uh, with a back-diving uh, contract, $5.33 million cap hit that the Vancouver Canucks contracted Roberto Luongo. And uh, still has that $5.33 million cap hit for the Florida Panthers. Now, he's um, played eight years um, and uh, received $57 million of the $64 million. So he's only leaving right now $7 million on the table were he to retire at the end of this season. So I won't get back into the math again, but suffice to say... Um, you know, the, the Vancouver Canucks could get stung 
if Roberto Luongo retired, and I'm not suggesting Luongo will retire at the end of this season. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back for another year. Um, keeping in mind, though, it's the last three years where his his uh, contract drastically drops off in the one millions for his uh, actual pay. Um, but uh, were he to retire at the end of this season, uh, the Canucks would get stung with a back diving, con- or sorry, a cap recapture penalty of almost $3.6 million. Uh, so again, the cynics will suggest that when it's time for him to quote unquote retire, Roberto Luongo will end up on LTIR and that'll be up to the National Hockey League to judge whether that's the case. And I don't know that we've seen, I don't think we've seen anybody with one of these back diving contracts and other players who I believe have these include um, JP, uh, sorry, not JP, Zach Parise, uh, Ryan Suter, amongst others. So there's a lot of these back diving contracts out there. And a lot of times they do involve players who do get injured a lot and have some chronic injuries. So it's just something to keep an eye on as we uh, continue to uh, work our way through this CBA and uh, to the expiry of those contracts that were signed during the last CBA with the backdiving element and now subject to cap recapture penalties. Not to bog you down with more uh, CBA stuff, but uh, here's a question from uh, Trevor who says, big fan of the Bobcast. My question is, why are most entry-level contracts three years? If you're an elite player like Patrick Liney, for example, wouldn't you want your entry-level contract to be as short as possible so you can start making more money? Thanks, Trevor from Connecticut. Let's go Rangers. Okay, um, well, Trevor, you've kind of answered the question. Uh, Yeah, Patrick Liney and all these players, especially the 18-year-olds, would love to have uh, a shorter entry-level contract, but the reason they have a three-year entry-level contract is because the National Hockey League wanted to try to cap um, the young players who come into the league, cap within a cap, if you will, on that entry-level um, uh, contract. Now, there are bonuses for entry-level players that aren't available to other players in the NHL, so the good, really good entry-level players can earn two, three, almost $4 million a year during their entry-level years, um, and, and, but they have to earn that, and that's what the league wanted. Now, the league also wanted to put these players coming out of entry level at a severe disadvantage so they don't give them salary arbitration rights until after four years. So a lot of these players on entry-level deals come out, they don't have salary arb rights, and therefore they could be facing getting bridge contracts uh, for, again, having a cap within a cap um, on their earnings. Uh, and yet, a lot of teams have not used that tool to their advantage and have skipped the bridge contracts and have started giving real good players coming out of entry-level deals um, eight-year deals for big money or six-year deals for big money. And uh, obviously with players like Connor McDavid and others, they run right by this sort of thing. But uh, that was the whole idea of the CBA was to artificially keep entry-level contracts uh, at a low number and also not give the players graduating entry level the full tools of salary arbitration um, to be able to merit um, big dollar contracts. Hasn't quite worked out that way, but that was certainly the intent. And uh, uh, another CBA kind of related question, but this one impacts uh, the stretch drive. And uh, it comes from uh, Norm Sarek from LaSalle, Ontario. 
Hi, Bob. Uh, first off, thanks for putting in time to record your podcast and share some great stories. My question is related to call-ups from the AHL. After the trade deadline passed, I heard there was a limit imposed of four call-ups for non-emergency reasons. Why would the NHL put a limitation like this in place? I'm guessing there may be a story of a past event that may explain this. Also, can you explain what a non-emergency call-up is compared to an emergency call-up? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, when they put the CBA in place, they created this four-call-up rule. And, and the reason they did it, and, and it was um, certainly supported uh, by the Players Association, um, was that they didn't want there to be a whole bunch of uh, players being called up back and forth from the minors to the National Hockey League and, and back down again. They, post-trade deadline, they did not want an enormous amount of traffic coming between the minors and players shuttling back and forth. And I think the league also didn't want to be in a situation where clubs would decimate their American League farm team uh, by constantly pulling players up from there in non-emergency situations. So what they basically said was, you're limited to four call-ups. Now, a lot of teams in the National Hockey League think this rule really hamstrings them and, and do not like it at all. Um, and, and I mean, you can call a guy up and, and use him, and if you send him back down and call him up again, that counts as two of your four call-ups. So there, there is a, a limitation there. What a lot of teams think isn't fair is that the minute your American League farm team is out of the playoffs, you can basically... There, there is no more four-call-up rule anymore. If, you're, if your American League farm team's out of the playoffs, you can now basically, during the playoffs, call up everybody from your American League farm team, create your squad of black aces, and away you go. So some teams are punished for their a farm team going deep into the Stanley Cup playoffs and not being able to access the same number of players as some of the teams they're playing against whose farm teams have been eliminated from the Calder Cup playoffs. And yet there has been a tweak made to this uh, four-call-up rule that allows you in the playoffs to um, have as many as three players from your minor league team um, up at any given time. So there, there, there have been some allowances made, but um, nevertheless, it's a, it's a rule that a lot of NHL teams don't like. And I'll be curious when we go to the next CBA um, if, that's, uh, if that's a part of it. As for emergency versus non-emergency, um, if a team isn't carrying the full 23-man roster and dips below 12 forwards or dips below six defensemen or dips below two goaltenders, uh, they are allowed to so-called circumvent the four-call-up rule by an emergency recall. So um, that's why you don't see too many healthy scratches at this time of the year because uh, there may be a guy on the 23-man roster who might be healthy, but there's a better option in the minors who would normally be count as one of your four call-ups. But if you have a player on your roster who's not healthy, then uh, you can make that non-emergency call and it doesn't count against your four call-ups. All right, then the final phase of uh, this edition of the Bobcast is uh, draft-related. Uh, this from Peter in Carling, Ontario. Hi, Bob. I'm just curious. Why doesn't the NHL announce the date for some events like the draft lottery and the trade deadline to the public until it's getting closer to those dates? It's March, and we still publicly don't know when the Rasmus Dahlin Derby is taking place. That from Peter from Carling, Ontario. Um, I can tell you, Peter, that uh, my understanding 
of the draft lottery is that it's April 28th. It used to be, and I liked it this way, um, the, the, the playoff eve, the, 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 the first Tuesday after the end of the regular season and the night before the, uh, the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs began. I like going into the playoffs knowing exactly what the order of the draft was, but it's a television production, and um, because that wasn't tied to a game, uh, they now like to do it on a Saturday night, um, Hockey Night in Canada, in Canada, NBC in the United States likes to do the draft lottery just prior to a game or in the intermission of a game on Saturday night. And uh, they do it uh, usually towards the end of the first round or beginning of the second round. In any case, uh, Saturday, April 28th. Uh, with that in mind, a uh, question from Will S., who says, Hi, Bob. Uh, first, I'd like to say I'm a fan of all your work, your insights to the game and inside track and the latest news. Has been the best of any for years. Thank you. Uh, This year's entry draft is a pretty strong one with multiple Canadian teams looking like they are going to be picking inside the top 10. This draft will be even more exciting, hopefully, for fans north of the border. So my question is, for the Canadian teams that will likely have a high draft pick, i.e. Vancouver, Edmonton, Ottawa, and my favorite Montreal, which top 10 level players do you think they should aim towards drafting? Um, Should read a couple of other questions and I'll answer them all at the same time. This one from Nicholas Belanger. Uh, hey, Bob, if the Ottawa Senators were of the second overall pick in the upcoming draft, who would you select and why? Thanks. Uh, this one from Anthony T. in Michigan. Hey, Bob, I love that you go to Bobby Margarita in the summer, by the way, but also my question, anyone besides Darlene and the two snipers going to make their big clubs respectively to start the 18-19 season? As a Detroit Red Wing fan, I'm hopeful for the lottery win, but could also see us picking in that 5-7 to seven range. Do you think a pick in that range could suit up in the Wings lineup to start the year? Interested in any other guys, well, that aren't in the lottery? All righty. Um, so, okay, here's the deal. We've talked about this before, but I'll reinforce it one more time. Rasmus Dahlin is in a class by himself as the number one guy. Um, Potential franchise defenseman, uh, say no more. Um, After Dahlin, there's a layer of three scoring wingers. Uh, And what order you put those in uh, depends on the team uh, you talk to. So you've got Philip Zadina, who's been lighting it up uh, for the Halifax Mooseheads this year. You've got Andrei Sveshnikov, currently suspended uh, in the OHL, the Barry Colts, he's also been lighting things up lately, scoring a lot of goals. Uh, and the big Russian winger, Sveshnikov. And then you've got Brady Kachuk, who plays at Boston University, who are in the NCAA tournament. Um, what order you put those guys in uh, is really personal preference. But mm, the vast majority of scouts I talk to say that those should be the two, three, and four picks in some order. Now, earlier in the year, the next two best prospects or the next layer of prospects were two undersized defensemen, Swedish defenseman Adam Boquist and University of Michigan American defenseman Quinn Hughes. That was your top six. But what's happened over the course of this season is that a couple of Canadian defensemen, and I should point out the top two Canadian prospects in this draft, six foot two Evan Bouchard of the London Knights and six foot three uh, Caddy Bathurst defenseman Noah Dobson have vaulted up and are now challenging to unseat Boquist or Hughes as the top defenseman after Darlene and legitimate candidates to crack the top five 
and maybe whole, give the teams that are picking two, three, and four a little something to think about. So Bouchard is just lighting it up for the London Knights, putting up huge numbers, both goals and assists. He's a fantastic passer of the puck. He's been solid without the puck as well. Uh, Dobson plays a real strong, good all-round game. Uh, can play it physically, but also um, can skate and move a puck. So those are the two two defensemen that have vaulted up the ranks over the course of this season. And uh, Boquist is a guy that still is very much in consideration for the top five. So it'll be fascinating to see whether your uh, Ottawa Senators, as our Ottawa fan, asking about picking at number two, uh, or Detroit, uh, Anthony uh, um, from Michigan, wondering about what the wings might end up with. And, of course, everybody's hoping and praying that they are going to win the draft lottery and not have a decision to make because there is no decision to make at number one. It's Rasmus Dahlin. But it gets real interesting after that, and um, it's going to be fascinating uh, to see how that all plays out. Another draft-related question, this one from Kevin M. in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hi, Bob. On a recent episode of the Bobcast, you mentioned Ottawa was in the hunt for the draft lottery. Did they not trade their first-round pick to the Avs as part of the Duchesne trade, or is there some other piece that I'm missing? Not trying to rub salt in the wounds of Senators fans. I just have a vested interest as an Avalanche fan. Anyways, keep up the great work. Your pod is one of my favorite. Well, you are correct, Kevin. Um, in the trade involving Matt Duchesne for Kyle Turris, Ottawa sent Shane Bowers, who was their first pick in 2017, um, as well as their 2018 first-round pick and their 2019 third-round pick, as well as netminer Andrew Hammond, to um, Colorado in exchange for Kyle Turris. Now, um, that 2018 first-round pick is lottery protected. That is to suggest if the Ottawa Senators so choose and they have until right on the draft floor when they're getting ready to make the pick, they can decide whether they want to ship that pick over to Colorado or whether they want to keep it. And in which case, if they decide to keep the pick this year, then their 2019 first-round pick goes to the Colorado Avalanche. So this is fascinating. Um... Obviously, if Ottawa wins the draft lottery on April 28th, they're keeping the pick. They're taking Rasmus Dahlin, and Colorado is getting Ottawa's 2019 pick. But what if they don't win the draft lottery? What if they're picking at 5 or 6 or 7 or 8 or 9? Well, I guess it'll depend on who's available at 5 or 6 or 7 or 8 or 9. And then they can make that decision on the draft floor. And what they have to weigh is the player that's available to them on the draft floor in Dallas, at this year's draft in June, do they want to take that and risk that maybe they finish last overall next year or that they're a lottery team next year and Ottawa wins the lottery but really loses it because they've already shipped their pick to Colorado in 2019? They wouldn't have any discretion next year. So it'll depend. That's going to be a tough call for Pierre Dorian to to make on the draft floor um, but as I said, the, the Sens are hoping they just win the draft lottery and uh, get Rasmus Dahlin and then uh, ship the 2019 pick to Colorado. Just that easy, just that quick. <laughs> we'll see. Final question is a minor hockey question. This one from Mike in Watford, Ontario, who tagged it with sent from the pig barn. So obviously Mike is a pig farmer in Watford, Ontario. Uh, the last great pig farmer I knew were, of course, the Verbeeks, Patty Verbeek. And uh, there you go. So um, anyways, from Mike 
Hey, Bob, love the pod. My question is regarding my son and his hockey development. My son is a 2006 born, an 06. Wow, 06. Uh, just, a, just a baby. And is currently playing AAA hockey and doing very well. He loves the game and still has the dream of making it big. I love the drive he has, and as a typical Canadian hockey dad, I want to give him the best opportunity to go as far as he can wherever it takes him. In no regard do I think he's going all the way. What's your stance on kids playing hockey all summer? After the regular season, he plays spring hockey that ends in May, and then baseball and a little golf and skates once a week in between. Would like to ski him skate more, but I'm worried about burning him out and having him lose his love of the game, which would be a Canadian crime. P.S. I've read three books in the last five years, and two of them were yours. Both good reads. Thanks, Mike from Watford. Okay, Mike, uh, not for me to raise anybody else's kid, but here's the thing. Um, I, I know things have changed since my boys in 86 and in 89 played, and I know every parent feels like eh, if, you don't, if you don't have your kid involved in hockey year-round, you're, you're not going to be able to keep up. I just can't imagine that a kid of any age must play hockey year-round in order to stay on a level playing field with everybody else. If you play winter hockey, the regular hockey in the winter, and you play the spring hockey, I got to think that's enough. I got to think that you could train all summer, uh, play other sports. In your case, in your son's case, it's lacrosse. Uh, sorry, uh, it's um, it's baseball. In my son's case, it was lacrosse. And the change of seasons, I believe, is a really important thing. And there needs to be a break from hockey. There just does. Burnout's got to be a problem somewhere along the line. I just don't see where a kid can play hockey, hockey, hockey year-round and, and stay fresh. And I think there's a diminishing return on just playing games for the sake of playing games in the summer. If you're going to totally devote yourself to hockey, well, then devote yourself to training properly. And that doesn't include being on the ice all summer long. And I just think kids need to be kids and uh, they need to have fun with their friends and they need to have some time where they go to a cottage or they go swimming or fishing or something that isn't hockey related or training related and to have fun playing another sport. And, uh, and I've just got to believe that uh, the, the benefits of playing other sports offset whatever loss you think there is by not being on the ice 12 months of the year. And I've just got to believe in my friend Matt Nickel, the strength and conditioning trainer that's uh, uh, an expert in the field, would back this up. Uh, there cannot be an advantage to being on the ice 12 months of the year. And in fact, a good number of NHL players, they don't stay on the ice 12 months of the year. Uh, why should your 06 born do the same? So have some fun. Good luck to him. Good luck to everybody. That's it for another Bobcast. Uh, come back at you in April for the last regular season edition of the Bobcast. Thanks. Take care. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's At TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account 
and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.